0: You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Hunt the High Country podcast. This is Brad Carter with AltitudeOutdoors.com. Hey, thanks for joining in. We're trying to bring you some more consistent content, so look for a new podcast about every two weeks. Um, this one's uh, one we've been looking forward to for a while. Our guest is Trent Williams. Uh, uh, he's a, I mean, he hunts everything, but we're going to talk elk hunting today, deviate a little bit from our usual mule deer subject. So I, th- I hope you guys enjoy this one. One thing I wanted to start doing on uh, these podcasts before we jump in with the guests is just a quick little two-minute uh, gear um, gear question. Uh, I, I get a lot of questions, people coming in the shop or sending me emails or, or, or messages on social media. And so I wanted to cover one really quick with you today. And uh, if you guys like this segment, let me know, and we'll keep it coming. Uh, so, you know, this time of year... We just got draw results from Wyoming and Idaho and uh, Arizona and hopefully you guys got lucky in the draw. Um, I pulled an antelope tag in Wyoming, so I'm excited about that. Um, but um, anyway, guys have their minds on the upcoming hunts as our falls start to shape up and uh, been getting quite a few quite a few questions coming in. but here's one that I picked to talk about this uh, this week. It says uh, Hi Brad, uh, I've been listening to your podcast keep them coming I'm looking to get set up to stay on the mountain while hunting and I'm looking at a new camp setup what are you using and what could you recommend that won't break the bank so you know this this is a an interesting question because there is so many good options on the market honestly and so uh, I'll go through a couple that I'm familiar with um, and how much I think you you should consider budgeting this, uh, you don't want to get gear that's not going to stand up uh, in the in the mountains, where you know, as we know, things are, are pretty uh, fluid and uh, and can change pretty quick. So you you want something that can stand up to a little bit of snow, some rain, uh, even if you're hunting early season. Uh, we we run into that all the time in September. Even uh, I've had snow in August before too in the Wind River Mountains. So. Uh, as a as a budget I would probably think you're gonna want five to six hundred dollars minimum and you could easily spend way more than that and uh as then as far as weight goes i'll I'll have some guys put gear lists together and they they weigh a lot so you should be able to get in kind of that seven seven pound range maybe just barely over for that price um you can you can definitely go lighter for that price too but you're going to compromise quality a little bit if you do that I think Um, and that's that's the thing some people want ultralight some people want more durable and there's kind of a a middle middle ground to that so I would uh, like I said seven pounds a couple of recommendations that I have um, the Kelty Cosmic down bag that's a great bag for like 130 bucks which is really inexpensive uh, big agnes sandhoffer 20 is another one i like i would be i'd probably stay in that uh, 15 to 30 degree range is kind of an overall bag unless unless you're hunting in the late season stuff then you want something heavier i use a 30 degree bag all the way into october i mean I've, i guess i've used it in colorado even in november and then i will wear more clothes when i sleep if i have to so those are a couple of bags you could look at. Uh, pads, that's something you're not gonna want, going to want to overlook. A really good insulated pad is something that you'll want to find. Um, I use the Big Agnes uh, Q-Core SLX. It's a $150 pad, so it's probably not a budget pad, but something like the AirCore Ultra from Big Agnes is pretty inexpensive. Climate makes some great pads. Sea um, to Summit as well. Make some really some really great pads, so I would check those out. Find one that you like. Look for a R value of at least three, um, four if you can, but look at the weight of them. You should be able to be about a pound, maybe up to 20 ounces in a lot of those. So as far as tents go, um, that's a tough one, 250 bucks. I mean, it's pretty easy to get pretty heavy quick on a tent, uh, especially as you go into budget tents. Some guys like bivvies, things like that. I like something I can sit up in at least. Uh, so I would I'd probably recommend like a – I like the fly creek a lot from Big Agnes. Copper Spur is my favorite of theirs, but it's, it's more expensive. Um, the C-Bar 2 from Big Agnes is a great one-person tent uh, if you've got gear and stuff with you it's going to be under four pounds and i think uh those msrp for 199 dollars so um yeah lots of good options out there you ought to be able to find a tent that's that's under four pounds or right in there you know four to four and a half pounds uh pretty easily for that price it's gonna it's gonna work fairly well for you so anyway i uh, hope you hope you guys enjoy a little gear segment i'm happy to field any questions and uh and help you guys get set up this year for your gear. Just let me know as podcast listeners, of course. You know, just just let me know that, and I'm I'm happy to give you a great discount on anything we carry in our shop. So that being said, let's jump into this podcast. This is one I was not able to sit down for, uh, regrettably, but Billy takes over and uh, and talks with Trent. About uh, some 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 great elk hunting stories, tactics, calling scenarios, and a couple of really really fun stories about some big big bulls that Trent's been able to take with his bow on over the counter and general units, um, and uh, and I guess some limited ones too. So uh, Trent's got a lot of experience, a great outlook, and I think you guys will really enjoy this one. So thanks again for tuning in, and uh, hope you like it. This is the hunt the high country podcast
1: for those of you that don't know Trent Trent is an elk whispering turkey sneaking fish slaying (laughs) ninja that's the (laughs) the only way that I can pretty much describe everything that you do dude so it's good to have you and it's going to be fun to pick your brain um, a little bit about the outdoors and you know how you constantly find success
2: well, thanks. I, I, you know, I'm ecstatic that you guys wanted to have me on. I don't know that, um, I quite whisper elk or, or I'm quite a ninja, but you know, I do the best I can and, and, uh, just live for the outdoors. Um, you know, springtime for me used to be about looking for black bears. And now I just kind of enjoy turkey hunting and fishing instead. And the falls mostly about elk hunting and then filling that in with whatever I can do in between.
1: So I'm I'm curious. uh, Most guys switch from turkeys to bear. What made what made you go the other way?
2: I don't know. I don't know if it's just the fact that, um, you know, being from Green River in southwest Wyoming, there's not any turkeys around here. Um, It was always something I wanted to do when I was growing up and didn't get to do. I think my dad took me for my 16th birthday to the Black Hills. Um, and then it's just become like a yearly event since then, but I loved going up and, and baiting bears and I still find enjoyment in it, but anymore, I, I, I think mostly I just like the adventure portion of it to go, you know, you can hunt turkeys in the mountains if you want to call it that of, of the black Hills or at least steeper Hills. You, you know, I've hunted them in Iowa and, uh, just rolling Hills or, or flat cornfield type stuff. And just to go visit different parts of the country and see how other people, you know, make their living, whether it's by farming, ranching, whatever, or or these little small towns, I think is where I get a lot of the enjoyment from it. And then I think, you know, a lot of it too, is just that audible aspect that having that same um, kind of interaction you have with, and now people say that it's, you know, kind of the same thing. It's really not the same thing, but there definitely are some similarities. Um, But I think just to wrap it all up, yeah, that just, something different it's something that everybody else kind of lives with across the country that we don't have in western wyoming really all that close so it's it's a little bit more of an adventure for me
1: well cool man that's uh something that i've always wanted to do i think that'd be a perfect hunt for for a kid or to get the the wife out or yeah definitely so uh trent why don't you just go through and give the listeners a little bit of idea of your background
2: okay i uh I'm born and raised in Green River. Uh, I've lived here all my life, minus uh, a short stint trying out the college life. Um, I spent my childhood um, going and begging my dad to to take me to go hunting, fishing, or you know whatever was in season. Probably just like like a lot of people do. Um, I remember. I still remember my mom. She still says this to this day that she thought I was faking it just to make my dad happy. She didn't think there was any way that a kid could like, you know, the outdoors as much as I did, but that's all I wanted to do. And, and even now, you know, it's kind of shaped my life into, into where I am. I, I work out at Solvay, a a drone of mine here locally. And, you know, a big thing is being able to have time off and uh, just being able to, to go enjoy the, the things that I love to go do, whether that's like we just mentioned turkey hunting or elk hunting for 10 days or, or whatever.
1: No matter what you do, you usually crush it. So I guess let's <laughs> just jump right into it. Okay. So we called you the elk whisperer, and you mm-hmm. know, as I've looked through your social media profile and stuff, you have killed some awesome elk. So awesome. we, Brad and I both are diehard mule deer hunters, which you've mm-hmm. taken fair share, your fair share of, you know, good high country mule deer, but we really wanted to pick your brain about elk. We haven't really done much with the elk podcast because honestly, you know, I do archery elk hunt, um, but I've only actually killed one one elk with a bow, um, mostly with a rifle. So we just kind of wanted to pick your brain about, you know, some of the things that you're doing with calling elk and um, spot and stock and just maybe hear some from your some stories. So let's just start off. Why don't you... Uh, just explain a little bit about what you do with calling strategies um, and how you're, you've been successful on some of these bulls.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'll do the best I can to, to try, I guess, let everybody know what I do that's different. And, and um, I think the misconception that you hear a lot um, from people that are successful is to call less. And I don't necessarily think that calling less is the right approach. It's just calling less in certain situations and calling more in other situations. So I'll do things different, such as locate bulls at night. Um, That's becoming a little more popular. But if you drive roads just after sunset on your way back to camp or whatever, and you hit corners of the roads and bugle, you'll be able to, uh, elk are so much more vocal at night that, and we've all probably heard them, you know, in our our tents or whatever at night being and then we can't find them the next day so something like that really helps um and like i said you got to find elk and the best way to find elk is by calling two elk and locating them but um i guess the biggest thing that i do that i feel is different is when let me back up just a bit i think everybody or most people probably know that you got to be successful in calling elk. you got to get into an elks bubble and that bubble can be different depending on the terrain you're in. But um, once you're in that elk's bubble, people immediately wanna just fire off a, a call at that bull. Um, where I, I feel like I feel, I feel out a bull a lot more than, than most people do. And, and it's easier once you have confidence to do that. Um, so if I don't need to call to that bull, I won't. And it's just as plain as, as simple as that. I'm hunting solo most of the time. Um, so I know that kind of stealth is more on my side. And a lot of people want that in your face encounter and and you don't get that in your face encounter unless you get close. So I guess that's number one. But um, when you get in that bubble and you call to that bull, you're forcing that bull to make a decision. He's either got to come or go. Um, the vast majority of the time, especially on public land, they leave They're They're able to to get their cows and go up the mountain and, and basically make you chase them. It's probably happened to you know most people that are listening to this. Um, but just to drive that home that if you do call to that bull when you're in that bubble you are forcing him to make a choice so when i get in that bubble i'll be quiet i'll try and sneak around i'll try and find every way that i can to not call to that bull and make him make sounds on his own or or spot him in the timber or whatever um and i really believe that that's i mean probably the just the main reason that i'm able to get close to these bulls and and then you know, there's a lot of things that can happen between you getting to that bubble and and uh, getting a shot off. But if you stay with it long enough, you know you're going to get that shot, and uh, it's just about making that portion come together.
1: So just to pick apart a little bit of your your strategy mm-hmm. um, from what you just said. So you're locating at night, um, yeah, early morning. Yeah, I mean morning. I don't do that
2: all the time. But but if you're at a if, if you've got no idea, you know if you're in a new area or you haven't heard elk that much that week or, or whatever it, it's a great strategy to do nobody else is out in the woods really I mean you don't want to try and call these bulls in at night um, but yeah to locate them at night is a great tactic to do just to just to figure out where these elk are and they're going to be in the same places in the morning so that's I guess just a great like it's a great step to do in new country or just when you feel like you're lost you don't really have anything going for you it's perfect to do.
1: Yeah, and I would agree, you know. Um, I actually learned that from the elk nut. Um, Mm. Tried Mm. it last year. We didn't really know where the elk were. Um, We had pre-scouted an area, um, found some rubs, but didn't know exactly where the elk were. Um, Mm -hmm. Got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and bam, there they were, you know. Um, And it actually led us into a whole different drainage than I was even thinking about but we found one heck of an elk spot just cause the elk told us where they were. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. that's all it takes is, is just doing, you know, something a little different and you know, there's no pressure. You're not, <laughs> you're not trying to battle the, the camp next to you for bulls bugling at night. You're just purely trying to find information.
1: Yeah. And it's those high locator bugles. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't want to do a roundup bugle or anything else. It's just right. the high. Uh, I mean, if your ears aren't ringing at that, that high note, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work
2: terribly yep. great. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah. And that's another thing that, that, you know, I tell people is to listen to what the elk's saying a lot, you know, a lot of people don't know that, I guess they think a bugle's a bugle. A bugle is always a bugle and they're not really in tune to listening to what, what that elk's trying to say. And once you start figuring out, you know, like you're saying to use a locator bugle, um, or to use bugles or cow calls in, in certain instances, it's, it's, you know, truly a game changer.
1: So after you locate a bull, um, are you just even if you hear a bull, you know, crack off right at right at dawn? Are you calling with a locator bugle? But once you find him, why don't you just walk into specifically how you're getting close?
2: Well, I guess to, just to start off with the same scenario, early in the morning, yeah. If I hear a bull bugle, I don't do anything else, and I've hunted with people that have, you know, kind of got bad at me for not having that back and forth uh with these elk but you don't need to once you figure out where he's at i just go to him you know nothing's going to change besides you know that you have to cut the distance on that bull um if he's going to go up the mountain down the mountain whatever it doesn't really matter if you're a half mile away especially obviously with archery equipment so cut the distance i cut the distance immediately and then you know if there's a spot where i can glass into there and, and find out where these elk are i'll do that um if it's just a big timbered ridge and I feel like, well, now's the time to just bust in there and try and get in his bubble. I will. It's just about, you know, getting as many of those close encounters as you can during September to, to finally be successful.
1: Perfect. So why don't you just go into one of the stories? um, Tell us about one of those bulls that you actually called in.
2: Um, I guess my best story is, is a bull that I call King and i that's the bull I killed in 2017 and I think that everybody else that knew about him also called him king it just kind of fit um it's a bull that was in uh it was in western hunter magazine um and I actually hunted this bull three years before and had a lot of history with him um I found him in a in a canyon not real far from from a road um but just a deep canyon that nobody wanted to go into um and to make you know a month of encounters short, I just basically got to learn him and, and that was important. He felt unkillable really. Uh, anytime I'd get close to him, um, he'd go the other way. He came in silent on me twice. Um, I ended up actually calling him into about 10 yards after his satellite bowl uh, bugled and I was able to sneak in there just, just, you know, kind of I guess, hoping, I, I feel like I knew it was that group of elk, but I, I wasn't for sure, but hoping it was him, called to him, called him into 10 yards, and he, he busted out into a meadow, and I actually missed him, um, and then I had him in my crosshairs rifle season, uh, was there, never able to get a shot off, and then I, uh, I drew a tag the year after that, and then I went back country hunting with a buddy the year after that, um so now we're 3 years later I go back into the same drainage and he's the first bull that I hear bugling. Um I think he was on September 3rd, might have been September 6th, but I guess just knowing that you know I called the way I called the bull in twice it was completely different times and he came in silently but he was always pretty vocal. I just this is kind of what really concreted, you know, my hunting style that if I just get in that bubble and I can stay there um That sooner or later you know good things are going to happen but I ended up getting really close to him on that that first time I seen him um, on this now year three I got to within like 35 yards I think and he didn't follow his cows uh, across this meadow he decided he was going to come above and basically come right where I was at busted down the mountain and I looked for him for I think five more days Uh, I was never able to find him and then it was my last last day up there and i went to where i'd last seen him i bugled into these little hidden areas had no response i was actually looking down the mountain at my truck and kind of just looking around trying to see what you know is this it or am i going home or is something going to crack off and i remember as i'm having those thoughts um he bugles behind me right where i just came from and right where i thought he was so I had to circle i got um downwind of him had to actually push a raghorn out of the way just being aggressive and you know like I said it was my last day at least on that trip so you know I really had nothing to lose I'd already bumped him from there once but raghorn had me had me pegged satellite bull I pushed him basically off the mountain and and ripped a bugle he ripped one back but that's an instance where I still don't believe I'm in that that bull's bubble I just am trying to create a scenario um, that's natural knowing that I'm being this aggressive. So oh, yeah. bump, bump that satellite bull off, get to the top of the hill. And I mean, he's charging in, it, it just becomes right spot at the right time. Um, and taking advantage of an opportunity, he's, he's chasing a cow up the hill and ends up chasing her right past me at 35 yards. And I put an arrow in him and he, and he dies like 60 yards later. So it was wow. just like, yeah, it was a, col- a culmination of hunting this bull for for this amount of time and, and thinking he's unkillable and honestly thinking that somebody got him already. And then going into that same spot three years later and finding him in, in, in seven days, getting it done. So I guess that's, that's was really the kind of the one that gave me a ton of confidence. And in knowing that even the ones that I didn't, those opportunities where I didn't necessarily take advantage, I, I knew I got close and, you know, one little thing had to happen different for me to get a shot off and, a lot of times it obviously didn't, but, you know, the one time it comes together is, is awesome.
1: Yeah, that persistence, you just keep at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's they're going ma- to make a mistake sometime. So just a few questions with that. Um, over, Um I mean, since you have a three-year history with that bull, how far was he moving? Um Was he in the same spot year to year? Um, he, was he uh, running a canyon? What was he doing?
2: Yeah, I found him so it's kind of hard to explain. He's in, he was in like a, um, a head of a basin. Um, but there's three, I guess, three little, uh, three secondary ridges that come off of that. And they're all as the crow flies, I guess, less than two miles anyway. So he would just, it would almost be those, these, those side ridges are big enough to where you, I had to make a choice almost every day, you know, and he would just travel those. So it was, A lot of times I just picked the middle ridge knowing if he's not here, you know, I, hopefully I can move and get onto him on one of those other side ridges. But yeah, I mean, he didn't, he was in the exact, almost the exact same spot. He was probably 400 yards from where I, I saw him the very first time to where I saw him the first time of 2017, the year I killed him. And then the time I did kill him was all within just a 400 yard area. Um, and I know from some guys that were also hunting him, they had trail camp pictures of him way down the mountain. And he would leave his cows, it seemed, because I always ran into him with cows. They said they never saw him with cows. But he'd leave his cows, go wallow down on the mountain, and then come back up. So he basically would just make, he would live on these three ridges. And when he needed water he needed to go wallow, he would drop down, go hit the wallows, and then immediately come back up to his cows. But otherwise, yeah, he never... He never left his home, his little home range of probably two miles. He might have walked 10 miles a day, but he never left that spot.
1: And that's a great analogy and a great story to learn from. Um, so as your dog on these bulls, especially this one, um, you know, I've had problems always. You know, if you come in from behind, the wind's good usually. But, you know, usually those elk will never come back once they've been through an area yep so how are you dogging these elk I mean obviously with this bull you were pretty aggressive I mean are you coming in from the side um, just walk and walk me through that scenario um, Well usually I mean
2: wind is keen you're never gonna you're never gonna beat them beat them without it so like those days where I'm saying I, I'd have to pick a spot if it's bright and early in the morning uh, all I'm doing is getting high so I can listen and knowing that I'm gonna have to drop elevation. Um, I'm always coming from below them bright and early in the morning when your thermals are still coming downhill. Um, like you're saying, it's almost impossible to call them back. And all I'm trying to do is dog them to the top of the hill, um, or top of the mountain. And then really just, I guess, adapt as, as I go, um, you know, whatever way the wind's blowing, I've got to circle, circle that direction. Um, but I, I just truly believe like going back to, to what I hit on before, if you're if you've got the wind right and you're not forcing that bull or or that herd of elk to make a decision, you've got so much more time than you think. I mean, even in, you know, in Western Wyoming, it seems like we're constantly dealing with those swirly winds, but I don't think they start up until, you know, like 10, 11 o'clock usually. Um, People getting impatient um, and working the wind right and then immediately trying to bugle to a bull to either call them to where they want them to be or back down the mountain. And all that bull's going to do is push his cows or, you know, lead cows going to take him farther. And, and a lot of times the party's over. Um, but if you're just able to, I guess, stay in contact um, and just adapt, adapt as you go, adapt with the way the wind's blowing or, or, you know, and then once you get history with these elk and you kind of know that the places they frequent, you can start to try and guess and, and make the next move for them. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's just it's just adapting on the go and and staying staying quiet, really. Just, you know, sneaking through the woods, using woodsmanship and and trying to guess their next move. Um and I guess kind of like we had on before, everybody wants that that in your face screaming match where a bull just comes in screaming. Well, if you spend, you know, a couple hours a day in the morning with elk, you're gonna get plenty of that. Um it might not be necessarily directed right towards you, but you're gonna get that that encounter that you're looking for that, you know, there's elk constantly making noise in the morning as they're moving. Um, if, if you aren't hearing bugling and cow calling, you're hearing them move through the forest. So um, once you get in that bubble, as long as you don't spook them out, you know, I mean, a million things can happen. The wind can swirl or whatever, but as long as you're staying in contact with those elk and, and kind of in his bubble to where you can make moves, I mean, sooner or later, it's going to happen for you.
1: Okay, just a few more questions. Once you get in that bubble um, and you need to call, what kind of calls are you using?
2: Uh, just depends on, on I guess, the time of year and, and how I feel that bull's doing. So I called in a, a bull this last September that I missed. I hit a tree, uh, but I called him into, I can't remember, I think 32 yards. But I had cow called from across the canyon, and he answered me. And he, he could, you could tell that he was calling two cows. He was calling to me for me to come closer. So that's exactly what I did. I dropped down the mountain, but I, I stayed quiet besides maybe, you know, cracking a few sticks that I don't know if you could hear that or not. And I don't think that hurts a lot of times. It just helps with, with realism, you know, so got to the other side of the mountain, got to where it was real, a lot more open than, than where I chase elk. A lot of times it was just uh, like the edge of a, of a quakey patch that dropped into some sagebrush and so you get to a point where you can't go any farther right where my tactic really of just staying dogging them doesn't work so you ha- you're forced to either call these bulls to you or the game's over so in that case I started with cow calls I got even with them to where I knew the wind was right I got even with them on the mountain um, started with cow calls and all he did was want to just keep calling me to him he chuckled to me wanting that cow to come in. And I can tell that, obviously, you're a hunter, you can't run in. Um, so that's when I just did my own high-pitched bugle acting and pointed it behind me, acting like I'm another bull that came in trying to call these same cows to him. And that's all it took for him to to break, break free and, and come into, you know, about 30 yards. So in that instance, you know, I started with cow calls. He was interested in cow calls. There's no reason to to switch it up. And then once I'm over there and, you know, it kind of gets stale, you got to incorporate something else in, you got, you know, think of, you know, some kind of scenario in your mind that you think would work. Um, And that was the one I thought of was just, you know, let's try and be another bull because this obviously isn't going anywhere. Let's try and be another bull. See if that gets him fired up enough to come in and it it worked like a charm. Um, Other times I've, you know, got right in on bulls. I bugled to them. Um, they've kind of warned me or to stay back and, you know, I get right in there, challenge bugle to them and, and that works sometimes, but, um, I guess just maybe it's just my experience, but a lot of times for me, those bulls have enough time to, that when they hear a bull, another bull coming, which is you, you know, they'll take their cows and go, but that's another way that I have called in bulls in the past is, if the mood's right, they've got a bunch of cows and you bugle to, to get location from them and then you run in there, I mean, there's really the only other move is to, is to challenge him or try and call his cows away and fire him up.
1: That's actually one of the things that I've learned, um, you know, that we really had a lot of success with last year getting those bulls in is getting tight, you know, with cow calls and then actually mm-hmm. doing what, you know, Joel Turner and Elk Nuck call Bull Calling Cows bugle. Mm-hmm. um, you know, and trying to call those, those cows away because sometimes that bull, I mean, most of the time that bull, when you're in his living room, um, he's got to make a decision. Yep. Um, and especially if you're calling those cows that, I mean, we had, we had some really close encounters. So that's a, that's a really good tactic.
2: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, Paul and and nut is, man, I've learned that truly, you know, when Paul came out with all of his first stuff uh, is worse than wolves DVDs and, and really broke down what elk say was a huge turning point for me. Just like it, you know, probably is when I tell people that, Hey, you know, you've got to, you've got to listen to what bulls are telling you. And people look at me, you know, like I'm an alien, but to to fully understand how you're supposed to work each and every scenario, you got to understand what the bulls are saying each time. And it's such a huge key. And I'm not, I'm, there's no way I'm perfect at it. I just, You know, you do the best you can. You try and figure them out. I tell people all the time, um, the best way I can tell you that's simple, and I still use it a lot, is bull elk are like a guy at a bar. If they're high-pitched and talking to the ladies, how you doing? That's the best analogy I can give. If anybody's threatened, it's a deep voice, you know, screaming match. And I still, when I don't exactly know what those elk are saying, I still go back to that in my head. High pitch, talking to cows, low pitch. Um, they're either warning you to stay away or, or talking to other bulls.
1: Perfect. Um, what are some other resources? We've obviously mentioned Elk nut and Paul Mendel. Um, most every serious elk hunter has heard of Elk nut. Um, mm-hmm. He's done tons of podcasts. Also, you know, he's got the app. Um, what are some other resources that you've learned to kind of learn Um, what the elk are saying and what specific calls because it's just not calling it's using the right call at the right time
2: yeah it's using the right call at the right time and then and then just listening and being able to to even just know what's going on there from afar you know you know just hearing that bull bugle if he's got cows and that changes the game completely Um, I guess as far as other resources I probably like most other people who, who hunt elk I just watch a lot of a lot of elk hunting you know most of it's on like youtube now watching born and raised guys and and uh you know phelps guys and and stuff like that and and just i guess critiquing what they do um you know maybe that's not the right word but but putting myself in the same scenario and seeing if i would have done anything different and and how you know maybe seeing if if they do the same thing a different thing whatever um i still love Um, outdoor forum like the forum type community so I'll still log on and and ask questions and see what what questions people are asking and I don't know why that's so much more personal to me but I just think information gets shared um, a lot better through that than like through people asking questions on Facebook or something like that so I guess just between you know the initial the initial learning of of elk behavior and elk vocalizations um, and then I still brush up on it every year. I still go through, um, Paul's, um, I don't even remember what he calls it, his field guide or, or in the field notebook that he came out with. I still read that. Um, I'll still throw the DVD in from time to time. Um, he's got the Elknut app now out again. I don't think either one of us have any affiliation with, with Elknut, but it's just such oh, we great, don't. Okay. yeah, it's just such great, great tool to have right on your phone to be able to plug that in and, and, um, play what you know the the sound that you think you're hearing from from his sound files um and then yeah just watching and and learning as much as you can during the off season or even during on season um from these other guys and and just seeing how people work it um and then a, a great tool like you know we've been talking about learning elk stuff is that's a great time too to listen to what elk are saying where you don't have that pressure on you or that excitement is when you're watching, you know, these hunts on YouTube or whatever, really just kind of tune in and, and really pay attention to what these elk are trying to say and see if what you think is actually what plays out.
1: Perfect. Um, just a, another couple of things. Again, I'm a newbie, still learning. Um, <laughs> just as you were, just as you were describing that, you know, that described me a few years ago, just, I mean, you know, I hear bull bugle, I just have to get a sound back to him. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. wasn't, It wasn't necessarily just the right sound. It was I just felt like I needed to say something, you know. Um, And a lot of times, you know, those bulls would know something's up because I wasn't saying the right thing. And they just take those cows and and leave. Last year, you know, as we dove into some of these resources that um, there's a lot out there. And again, just as you said, we have no affiliation, but it's worked for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Another good resource that I've used personally is the Elk 101 course. Um, from Corey Jacobson, that's yep. really breaks it down. There's so many good elk callers, and I think, you know, I mean, really that's how I learned how to hunt a big high country mule deer is just look at people that are successful and try to figure it out. Um, another thing that I've done is I've actually just taken my phone and when I get a, you know, get into a calling match, I'll actually record it. Um, oh yeah, and, that's a great idea too. Just record it, even just stick it in my pocket and it, leave, leave it alone. Mm-hmm. because then I can hear my calls as well as that bull's calls, and then I can critique myself after. And right. you know what? I've learned a lot because, you know, you get nervous and different things. And, so, you know, I can tell that and then can critique, critique myself after it's all over when, you know, the adrenaline's not there. I've done the same thing with, with Elk Nut app, you know, pull it out, and I yep. uh, use it right there on a bull. So
2: mm-hmm. I've done the same thing. I, I You know, not exactly sure what that sound even was. And so I'll pull it out and try and get my best guess. And the elk one one course is something that I have never heard anybody else, anybody saying that it's a waste of time. I think there's so much information there. You're going to get from it, what you put in. Um, yep. It's something that I haven't done personally, but I would, you know, I would have no problem doing it. You're never, you know, you're never too, too good to, to learn from any of those guys. Corey can, I mean, if you've listened to Corey call anywhere, oh, you yeah he's the best (laughs) he can't be beat you know so just to learn from him and then just learning from guys that spend that much time you know on elk in september so any 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 kind of that you know those courses are great um and then yeah watching and, and learning like that's something i never would have even thought of to pull my own my phone out and record but i definitely will be this year just to just like you said once you're in the moment you you know, you try and think and recollect what you did, but you're not really 100% sure. But having that concrete evidence right there to tell you what you did right and wrong, you know, will be invaluable.
1: No, that's really helped me. And again, I won't. I don't want anyone to think that I'm an expert at elk collar. I'm still <laughs> learning. But I went from having, you know, one encounter to I can't even count how many we had last year. Um, you know, and it's just a process, just like anything. You know, mm-hmm. the more... The more knowledge that you learn, the more that you craft, get the craft and can develop skills, you know, I mean, and just keep pounding the mountains. It's going to happen. We just you just have to keep building on on what you know and the more information you have and the more encounters and you get the more experience, you know, it, it just becomes second nature and you know what to do in the next scenario. That's it let's kind of switch gears. I'm interested in that bull. I think it was an Arizona bull. We call it the Lucky Charms bull.
2: Oh yeah. (laughs) I want
1: to, I want to hear that story.
2: Okay. Um, That bull, I drew a tag up by Cody. This is before I'd ever really killed an elk of any size. So this was me looking over, um, you, you know, where the biggest bulls live, draw odds, everything else. And that brought me up to the areas around Cody. Um, we all know that they're pretty much infested with grizzly bears and their smallings every year and and everything else. Well, I kind of just being young and dumb and maybe people do this all the time up there. I'm not sure, but, um, just being young and dumb, just kind of went, well, even if somebody was going to put in with me and apply with me, chances are us hunting together, you know, really wouldn't happen all that often. So, I just said, well, I'm just going to wing it and I'm going to put in and it'll be a solo trip and I'll just, you know, deal with the consequences. So I put in, of course, I, I drew kind of one of those where you don't really know if you want to draw or not. So you'll draw. That's what happened there. Um, And I spent, I I spent one scouting trip up there. Never saw any grizzlies. Just had a run in with a, with a mom and cub black bear. Um, But learn the roads and found a ton of cows, found a couple decent bulls, and just thought, well, at least I've got a leg up. Um, let's see, this was in 2015, and for whatever reason, the first the first week of that hunt, or early September, the archery hunt, I had the place to myself. I never encountered another hunter up there. Um, uh, the only people I saw were scouting for a deer tag. Um, so I'd actually got off graveyards and drove all the way up there, Um, got out of the truck, walked like 200 yards, hit a cow call and a bull bugled right back. Um, I ended up calling him right in. I got in his bubble, I guess, again, this was kind of before I I really knew what I was doing. Um, but I got, I got in his bubble without really knowing it and just let out the same cow calls I just let out, um, for him to answer me. And as soon as I let him out, I was in a terrible position. Uh, Something else we should probably hit on is just being ready you know, when you actually call and you know that you're close to a bull, be be ready and in position, have an arrow knocked, have your back to a tree. You know, I had n- nothing going for me. I was in the middle of the wide open, no arrow knocked, nothing. So bull comes in, busts me, takes off down the mountain. He was probably a 330, 340 bull. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, thought that maybe this is just going to be a cakewalk. And then I think for the next three days, I, I think I heard one elk bugle, um, but this is where scouting in the summer didn't necessarily show me any any elk uh, or any bulls that I wanted to chase. But I found all the cows on my scouting trip. I found like 300 cows. So I thought, well, you know, it's early in September. That big cow herd might still be there or close enough. I'm going to go in there and see if there's a, you know, if there's a bunch of bulls running up there or what's going on. So I drove up. It's the world's worst two-track road. I think it took me like... <laughs> two and a half hours yeah to rattle my way up the mountain and and get up there and when i get up there there's like a 300 inch bull right in the road bugling his head off man so yeah he goes off one end i drive up the road a little farther and at this time i had a i don't even remember the brand of the spotting scope i remember i i won it on ebay for like 400 hundred dollar bid so this is like you know this is the equipment i was using so I see these elk off, I don't know, probably a mile off. I have my spotting scope out and I'm trying to figure out just how big this bullet, I can see a couple bulls, but I'm trying to figure out how big the, you know, the biggest one is in the group and can't figure them out. Can't figure it out. Finally, I, he kind of turns away from me and, and goes to go up the hill and the sun, the morning sun's just shining perfect. And I can see that he's got, you know, just huge tine length, just really stuck out. And I finally thought, Ooh, you know, I really was going to pass up this bull. Not, not, no, just out a purely not being able to see what he was, but see this big tine length and finally go, okay, I should probably go after, you know, try and track him down. And, and this, this, this part of this unit is like, basically it's above timberline. I don't know if any, how many people have hunted over there by Cody and, you know, Absaroka range or, or whatever the proper terminology is, but it seems like timberline is like 9,000 feet. And then you've got these rolling like grass, uh, Mountain tops up top, and then some of them are are very, you know, are have a bunch of cliffs and whatnot. But so that's where this bull's living is up, kind of in the open. And I spot him on this road. It's also above timberline. And right when I spot him, a, a truck starts coming up the road. And I remember turning my spotting scope to the complete opposite direction, just not wanting to give this guy any idea what I'm about to do. And he rides right ride up to me and just says, "You know, are you elk cutting?" I said, "Yeah." He said well there's a huge bull right there I said well I know that are you not elk hunting he said no I'm this is one of the guys no I'm up here looking for deer for my daughter as a deer tag I said oh awesome well I'm gonna make my way over there and and cut this conversation short if you don't mind he said no go ahead so right I mean there's a little there's a little spur road that basically leads me straight towards these elk I take the spur road park the truck and I'm kind of just looking at them in the wide open, wondering what I'm going to do, and this fog just rolls in from the bottom of the canyon. I mean, it couldn't have been more perfect. Fog rolls in, gives me a perfect blanket to just do whatever I want. As soon as the fog rolls in, I sprint towards these elk. I get where I'm on their side of the mountain, um, and kind of just start playing the game of trying to find them. Um, I end up, popping up over one little ridge line, and I've got a cow at like 12 yards, so I know I'm really, obviously really close to, to the herd. Glass around, can't find him, can't see him anywhere, back out, and then the wind is great, wind's coming from them to me, so I back out, kind of go to the next little high point, pop up, and this bull had bedded in his own little tiny ravine, I don't know if it was a dry creek bed or what, but he had bedded there by himself, away from his cows, for who knows what reason, And all you could see was his antler tips. So I just belly crawled through the grass, got as close as I could to him. I think, again, it's like, I think it was like 35, 37 yards, thought this is close enough. And I just sat there and waited for him. I I remember waiting, I think, close to an hour and the wind finally started to swirl and switch. And at one point it switched and I I watched his head turn and he never did stand up. And then I knew the second time the wind would switch, you know, I just needed to be ready while the wind switched he stood up out of his bed i remember pulling my bow back and my arrow came completely off my release and everything so i've got this no no yeah i've got this huge (laughs) bullet 37 yards my arrow falls off the rest he is not looking at me for whatever reason has no idea i'm able to let down put the arrow back on my rest come back to full draw cow call stop him and and smoke him so watch him run out like i said it's wide open Watch him run probably 80, 120 yards, tip over dead, get up to this bull and really have no idea what I've killed. And I'm thinking, you know, he's, I don't know, I'm going back and forth between, is he 320, is he 350? I really have no idea. He's got huge time length, you know, and I, the next day I pack part of him out that day. Next day I go back in again, I'm solo. I pack the rest of him out in this grizzly infested place, supposedly, you know, Pack the rest of them out and then the Lucky Charms thing that you're reading about, I get back to camp that morning and I, I sit down and I'm just going to go, you know, I'm just going to eat my bowl of cereal and and I'm just waiting for it to get late enough to head home. It was like 80 degrees down at camp because it's only September 5th or something like that. So I'm sitting there and eating my Lucky Charms and I just started kind of laughing to myself for for no apparent reason um laughing just you know looking back on it now laughing that I drew the tag that you know I had no real idea what I was doing elk hunting I I thought I did but I really didn't I have no idea how big this bull is um and you know I survived five days up there by myself trying to match wits with these elk and then kill this one and for whatever reason yeah it was just a a funny moment I had by myself on the mountain, and I snapped a picture of that. And that's just one of those memories and one of those pictures you look back on, and and you know I can put myself right back to that place, laughing about really nothing, just laughing about what what all had happened and being able to pull it off. So
1: well, that's awesome. Seems like there's a, there's always a little luck, but.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely and, the lucky
1: charms, I think. Terms, I think with the, yeah,
2: well, yeah, that's the other. I now have lucky charms every time I go elk hunting in September.
1: So you, do, you eat them in the morning or you just keep them in your truck or what's the usually, deal with that? Actually,
2: usually, in the morning, I usually don't eat breakfast. I'm, I'll usually have like a cup of coffee and then head out. And then I'll have, you know, a snack or something on the mountain, uh, you know, mid-morning. And then usually it's when I come back. To the truck if i happen to come back mid-morning noon or whatever then i'll have my my bowl of lucky charms and i guess then all is right in the world once i've got that out of the way for the day
1: so pretty much you're telling me i just need to go get some lucky charms <laughs> and i can be an <laughs> well, killer like you yeah
2: it definitely doesn't hurt you need all the luck <laughs> you, can get, you know you might as well
1: Perfect. So uh, we reached out to, uh, to some people on social media just to see um, if they had any questions for the ninja here. Um, <laughs> we did have one one guy that uh, responded and was wondering about handling heavy loads and getting out out to the truck by yourself. Will you just kind of explain your process and kind of what you do, especially, um, you know, since you're solo? Um, and these elk are, are big animals, and it's mm-hmm. it's hard to get them out. Um, my brother and I actually killed two bulls with our rifles, and growing up on horses, you know, we've always, we've always had horses to get these animals out, mm-hmm. and even on a horse, it's a lot of work. It was the first really elk that I had a, an experience packing out, and I can honestly tell you, a deer really, I mean, they're not fun, but elk are terrible, and it was not very fun. So, yeah. Uh, Why don't you just go into getting these very, very big animals out, especially when, when you're solo.
2: The very first thing I do, you got to sit back and enjoy it because it's, it's going to be usually in my case, it's two days of pain, two days of pure pain. So I'll sit down, enjoy it, you know, take a bunch of pictures, do whatever I feel I want to do for, you know, probably, I don't know. It feels like a long time, but it's probably only a half hour. Um, and then start getting to work, you got to, a lot of times, you know, it's early September, uh, September just at any time can, can turn hot on you. Um, And you're, like you said, you're trying to break down these, these huge animals by yourself. So you're looking at this, you know, basically something the size of a horse laying on the ground. And to a lot of people, that's very intimidating. Um, I, to, to just walk you through how I do it, just, you know, start on one side, usually vast majority of the time i'll bone everything out um and a lot of people don't even sometimes know the beginning of that look the first you know couple few times i did it yeah i had no idea what i was doing either but when you get back to your house you're going to take them off the bone however you feel like anyway you do the exact same thing when you're on the mountain so lay them on their side and just work on that one side first um i'll always take off um, at least the front shoulder very first take the front shoulder off i've done it both times to where i've boned them out like with that front shoulder staying attached you can just start boning out and taking pieces of meat off with that leg staying there it, it keeps it honestly probably a little more clean um, but then you got to lop it off anyway to get that meat on the backside. so start with that front shoulder to to expose everything on your back strap so you can get all that meat as well um, people have started you know with the back strap the easiest one and then they'll cut it short and there's meat that's left behind that that was hidden by that shoulder blade and you didn't really know about it, this is the best way to make sure that you're going to get as much meat as you possibly can. So start with the front shoulder. That one honestly is pretty easy to bone out. There's, I mean, if you've ever looked at them, there's a ridge that goes right down the shoulder blade. I cut on both sides and cut my way down, basically butterfly it off the front. When you flip it over, you kind of fillet it off the flat part of that shoulder blade all the way down the same way. Um, then you, you know, the process now is up to you. Um, I guess I should mention, you know, if you've got a big bull on the ground and you're going to you're gonna skin it, um, keep the cape and whatever else, you know, that's a whole other headache, but skin it. I, I always start just to, on the back, cut, make your first cut all the way down from, um, if you want to do it from the middle of the horns, if it's going to be a shoulder mount, you can do that all the way down the backbone, right to the tail. And then you're able to kind of open everything up Skin from there, then head to your front shoulder, do all the stuff I mentioned. After the front shoulder, it's your choice to, to either, you can cut the back strap and stuff off right there. Um, you can get your rib meat, whatever you need. You can get your neck meat. The choice is yours. Once that front shoulder's off, everything is just kind of at your pleasure to, to do whatever you want. Um, the hind quarter is tough, uh, but, you know, it's just, it's heavy. There's no There's no good way about it most of the time now. I've been keeping it attached and taking just cuts of meat off. When you look at that um, hind quarter, you know, you can see the different muscle groups that that makes up your steaks. I'm not good enough to tell you, you know, which ones are, are, which cuts are which, um, but I'll just look at those muscle groups and try my best to to take the meat off with those muscle groups. Uh, It just makes it so much easier than cutting that hind quarter off and then wrestling with it, trying to keep it clean, and and all the hassles that go with it um and then honestly what you know from there i guess i should mention you can get in underneath once you have the quarters off the back strap off you can feel um right behind the rib cage you can get your fingers in there and get the tenderloin out there's been a couple videos and stuff made on that i know born and raised did one last year but you can get your fingers in there you can cut your way in and you can get that tenderloin out without ever gutting the animal or or messing with it. Um, and then, so once you've got that whole side, I usually take another, you know, pretty good break. This is, this that'll take you, you know, an hour and a half probably when you're by yourself to get that first side. And then from there, the hardest part, like I ran into on King was I couldn't physically roll him over. Um, his leg on the opposite side, both legs had, you know, been rigor mortis and, and been, just stayed straight and I couldn't figure out a way to flip him over. I couldn't flip him over grabbing his legs and going over his back um, because he was against a tree and I couldn't go the other way. So I ended up having to kind of bone out the inside of those legs um, that were on the ground. Um, But once you get that first side accomplished, you know, you're halfway there, you can take a deep breath. Everything's going to be all right. As long as you have plenty of game bags, um, a place to store them. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You get that first side done with, roll them over, work on the next side, um, get everything, like I said, get everything off the ground, cool them the best you can, and um, I guess take another break because you know it's just going to be nothing but pack out from there. I usually break it into two days on King. I shot him at night and worked until 2 a.m. I, I don't remember. I think I put an arrow in him at like 6.30, worked until 2 a.m., and then was back up at seven o'clock, getting everything off the mountain because I knew it was going to be hot. But usually, like I mentioned, if you kill a bull solo, any distance from the road, you are signing up for for just two days of of the responsibilities of being what an elk hunter is.
1: To add to what you are doing, um, I've done it both ways. Um, you know, we used to just uh, actually do the the guts out and then mm-hmm. um, split it, split them. We haven't done that. For quite a few years even with the horses Um, one thing that I found is you know especially when it's hot even when it's not that hair is so thick on an elk that you've got to get it off I've noticed a huge difference um, just in the meat quality from the moment that elk hits the ground to just get that hair off and get Mm -hmm. that meat cooling so that's one thing that we started doing You know, and just like you said, there's a lot of good resources out there for guys that that haven't ever done the gutless method. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they call it Indian quartering as well. Um, The only difference that that I do from what you do is we do pull the quarters. Um, I guess if you're backpacking, um, are you taking, um, I mean, because it's not really mattering to you how, you know, the weight distribution. Are you just taking as much meat as you can carry? Are you doing… Uh, you know, a quarter at a time, what are you doing?
2: Yeah. I'm just, I mean, on, on a small bowl, a smaller bowl, I can usually get like, I've done it in two trips. So I just do as much as I possibly can, but I still try and keep it somewhat. Even if I'm going to be, you know, real technical about it, I'll honestly try and be a little heavier on the first load. So that I know mentally the second load is lighter and I'll do that anyway. I mean, even if it's going to take me a bunch of trips, I'll do the same thing, just knowing that it's going to get easier as you go. If you take a first load that's light, you know, just mentally, you're just kind of already drained after that first one. And, you know, it's only going to get worse. It really doesn't help with with where you need to be mentally. But, yeah, I'll just having you know, not needing to, to keep everything even. I'll usually keep everything separate in game bags just so I know when I get home what is what. Um you know, just still usually I have five or six game bags. So I'll put quarters in each one and then like loose meat in a, in another one, uh, back straps and loins in one and then loose meat, I guess, in the other one, neck meat, rib meat, whatever. And that's about as technical as I get with it. And then from there, it's just, you know, whatever I, I feel like I can fit in my bag that that first trip is is just pretty much how I roll.
1: Perfect. Um, just so the guys know, if you're using pack stock, you have to keep the, you know, just so the saddles don't turn, you know, the weight has to be the same. Mm-hmm. So the only difference that we're doing where we actually do pull the quarters, but usually, you know, I either have my dad or my brothers with me, um, you know, getting an elk, especially that hind quarter off by yourself, <laughs> it's going to be rough. Yeah, um, but then we just usually hang it up, you know, on the ho- if we've got the horses, we just put it on. But you know, if we're backpacking, you know, you can lose thirty pounds plus easy with those yeah. bones if you just take the bones off. So then we'll just you know hang it in a tree, and then it gives a pretty good. Um, it, it, right as soon as it comes off the animal, um, as you t- as you were talking about, you know, kind of skinning that hide. If you keep the hide off, kind of keep it on the ground. Um, it gives you a pretty clean, um, basically a tarp to work from because the underside of that is clean. Um, so once you pull that meat off, we just never let it touch the ground. It goes straight into a tree, you know, hanging up and then we'll, we'll bone up from there. But it sounds like, um, we do pretty much the same thing.
2: Yeah, pretty similar. And I, I kind of jumped around getting right into how I do it without talking about skinning it back. But yeah, like you were saying, getting that hide off is, is so important and, just starting my very first cut every single time is from somewhere in the neck area straight um, to the tail. Once you get there, you can do it however you want. You can feel that back. You can go up the back legs. Um, you can do it a million different ways to get that height off. And then the only other thing that I would add is I always have a bunch of garbage bags. And a lot of people, you don't necessarily want to put meat um, in garbage bags if you got to haul anything you know any type of distance but if you need to I've, I've submerged them in creeks before put them in the garbage bags and put them in creeks and then also just having the garbage bags they've got a, a million different uses but it's the same thing like as using a tarp so i've cut one apart or cut three apart one time and just taped them all together and had myself you know a nice clean table and done it that way too but anymore it's just easier if i'm just skipping a step and skipping, you know, a little bit more of that, of breaking my back than taking those quarters off and then wrestling with them. If I can just get the majority of that meat off before I ever lop those quarters off, then I I feel a whole lot better about my choices after that.
1: You no, know, and I totally agree. That's a great, a great point that I've never thought about. If you're solo, I mean, even that energy conservation, I mean, that mm-hmm. takes a lot to get those quarters off. If you're just cutting meat, that saves your energy. I mean, yep. you've got a lot of work to do. Even mm-hmm. if you do have a buddy with an elk. Um, the only other tip that I would give um, is I, I learned, I don't know, a few years ago, I used to usually always start, you know, at the top, um, especially if you're caping an animal. Um, if you start start right between the horns, the the hair is just, you don't have to go against the hair. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it opens up like a zipper if you go from the horns back to the tail like you're talking about. Um, if you start and try to go either mid body up, a lot of times those cuts aren't straight and the taxidermist yeah, the has zig-zag. a hard time. Yep. Yeah. So uh if you start between the horns, um, especially with a, a sharp knife like a Havilon or some of these bench made knives, you can zip that off and, and nothing. That's pretty it's a lot better than going from mid body up.
2: Yeah, it's something I learned after I got yelled at from my taxidermist, I think, about all those little <laughs> all the little tiny cuts you know going and it's loose so if you come from like you're talking about just to add on to it that hair starts to get more and more loose if you're coming from mid-body up so you just have nothing but stuff like you're saying going against you loose hide everything just working against you and you just got little cuts where you're ripping through everything a bunch of little tiny cuts where like just like you're saying you start between the antlers and go straight down it's just one perfect solid cut
1: Perfect. The only other question I have with this to wrap, wrap this, this portion of the podcast up is, um, as you're caping an elk, um, the bull that I killed last year, I actually caped just so that we could sell the cape to the taxidermist. Mm -hmm. Um, it was heavy. Are you doing anything? Um, I mean, you're just taking the head off, caping it like you normally would, and then taking the head off. Are you actually, you know, caping that completely off the head?
2: No, I've, every time I've done it, it's been, it's been just my last load. Um, and a couple of times it's been the worst, you know, just a heavy cape head and antlers. Um, but I, and I should probably have more confidence. I just kind of think that, you know, I can't screw it up if I take the whole head with me. So yeah, I'll just skin it up as far as I can and then not leave any neck meat, (laughs) nothing like that. Don't don't saw it off or, or anything before you get right to the back of that skull. Um, and then there's, you can just detach. I, I do it with my knife every time. Now I don't even bring a saw vast majority of the time, but you can just roll that head forward, detach everything right behind the skull, right behind the brain cavity from, uh, and the spine, detach it, kind of cut all that, the, the throat and everything out. And then you've just got the head there, but yeah, I, I haven't yet just completely caped it. And just taking the cape and the antlers out. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I pretty much we take care of a whole elk usually with one blade on a Havalon. Um, yep.
2: Unless you break you know, it. if you know,
1: well, yeah, And I carry more, but you know, the, mo- the yep. once you get experience, you can disarticulate those joints just mm-hmm. with a knife. So yep. um, a lot of resources out there um, for guys that are interested that haven't done the gutless method or you know, boned out an animal. I just get on YouTube and search gutless method or Indian quarter. um, And I'm sure a lot of those videos will come up. And, you know, if you watch three or four of them, everyone's going to do it a little bit different, you know, but after you you do a few animals, it does get easier.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's something that's really relatively new. Like, you know, the first time I did it around my dad, he had no idea that you could even, you know, take care of an animal without gutting it. And it's just something that, that is second nature to me now i don't it's so much more clean and and easy but yeah yeah, a lot of guys i totally agree yeah you can be a hunter your whole life and never never know that that this is really even a possibility but it is definitely the way to go
1: yeah even even growing up with the horses you know it used to take two horses to get an elk out even a a big Mm -hmm. cow but now we'll put a whole bull on a on a horse with the gutless method so yep And a lot of people are worried about losing meat. I honestly think it's 10 times better because you get that meat cooled. And just like you're talking about, you can get every, even the tenderloins. A lot of people don't, you know, um, especially if you're going to get checked, that's one of the first places a warden's going to check is if you take the tenderloins. But Mm -hmm. after you do it and you learn how to do it, it's actually simple. So, (laughs) yeah, 100
2: percent. I agree with you.
1: The last thing i wanted to talk about tonight um, you always seem to get it done <laughs> no matter <laughs> if it's turkeys or mule deer or elk um, everything that i see very rarely do you have to eat a tag i'm just curious at how you know obviously it's time and days in the field but especially in those days where you're where you're having a rough time and you have those negative emotions like um, how are you handling that and how do you keep your head straight
2: Well, I I guess to lead into this, I I just have a small story. I I don't even remember how old I was. I think I, you know, somewhere around 15 years old, hunting with my dad. And I was so mad uh, because of just a bunch of different things about not, we were in the Black Hills, not seeing any deer, you know, um, cattle on the public land, um, just everything you can think of was just making me, get me in a bad mood. So. I guess from that day forward, I remember sitting down and just going, "Look, man, this is the, this is what you enjoy most in life. This is what you live for." Um, there's no reason to come on these hunting trips and have a mindset like this where you're all pissed off. And I, you know, I'll still kind of go back to that day and just relive, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And and I guess that taught me a huge lesson um, after that. And and now I just, I guess, I'm lucky in that. I just remind myself when I need to, but I'm lucky enough that, that I love it so much that I really don't ever fall into a negative mindset. I just, I know I have the confidence to know that things are going to turn around. You might have three days you didn't get into any elk, but it's no reason to pack your stuff up and get angry and go home. Dave, you know, it's only going to get better as September continues. Um, so only thing I really ever know how to do is work harder and, and find find a new place and, and go enjoy myself in another in another drainage or, or something else where I know I'm going to have fun. And if I need to change scenery, I'll do that. But just, just being able to just reflect and go, Hey, this is, you know, this is what you love to do. Um, there's no sense in in getting negative, uh, about anything. Like I said, the confidence that, that it's going to eventually happen really helps the confidence in knowing that this isn't the end and, and everything, you know, everything's, you're, you know, you're going to get an opportunity to an elk. It's just a matter of time and and everything else keeps me in that, in that mindset as well. So.
1: Perfect. Um, And I found the same thing as I reflect back, you know, have the many memories and stuff that I've made in the outdoors, you know, it almost seems like it builds on each other. Mm -hmm. Um, You have that experience. You just have to have that one time where you just grind it out and you have that success. And then it's almost like, you know, when you start feeling that, those emotions and different things. And it's just like, oh, you know, last year I had the same thing. And, you know, day five, day six, you know, I was able to find a great big buck or, or whatever. You know, and sometimes, you know, this is the outdoors. It's not, it's not cut and dry. Sometimes you don't get those opportunities. Yep. But, you know, at the end of the season, when you hang up all your gear, you're going to think about it all year long. And, you know, I've had those times where I've given up. Um, but I've also had those times when I've pushed through and, you know, if you can build on have those experiences, it's a lot easier to just keep grinding. Then if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, but at least you gave it all and, you know, then you can just start planning and become better for the next season.
2: Yeah, but I I I'd done it just like you did, you know, gave up early on a hunt when I was younger and it seems like the right thing to do at the time, you know, you miss being home or, or you are you feel guilty because you have other responsibilities you could be doing and it's really just not working out, you know, where you're at. And and it, the very first thing that you think about, or at least me, when you get back to town and start doing all those things that you were thinking about on the mountain is getting back up there. So to just kind of stay in that same mindset of, of, you know, this is what I waited all year for. And just enjoy your time up here is just so important and then I guess the only other thing that I I have to hit on it is just having a sense for adventure I've had days that I've gone and done some really dumb stuff as far as hunting is concerned but I just wanted to see what that looked like you know and if you're in that slow move or that slow time you know you've got that opportunity to just go check out some new country for for no other good reason than to go see what's over there. Or, you know, I have, like, my dad will bring a fishing pole when it gets slow, and he just wants to enjoy himself and remember while, while he's there. He just goes fishing for an afternoon or whatever, and then, you know, he's back to back to feeling normal. So whatever you can do to to just remind yourself that this only comes around, you know, for a month or two every year, and this is what you waited for, and to not, you know, not give in or just not even get angry about it. it you know, just enjoy your time. That's all I that's really the only kind of tip I can give.
1: I've also found, you know, in the, those grinds when it's just terrible and uh, you just hate it and it's hard and you're, you know, the anxiety's coming, being a part of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's those times that I I actually love. And yep. when I get back, you know, you're you're dead. It may take you a day to recover, but you always do recover. And guess what? You're better for it. And so, okay. you know those those grinds that's that's where those are the hunts that you remember
2: Mm -hmm, definitely
1: um just before we conclude i do have just one more question um what are some what are some gear items that that you don't leave home or don't leave the truck without
2: chapstick (laughs)
1: perfect (laughs) if
2: i uh, i hunted i remember going elk hunting for about a 10 day stint and my my lips got chapped on day two and i fought through it the whole time and it was I, I still just remember how miserable I felt for you know days and weeks after I got home. But chapstick, I'll have a chapstick in my pocket when I leave. This probably is not the gear you were speaking of, but this is really what's important. I'll have a chapstick in my pocket and then two more in my backpack somewhere just in case I lose one. I um, guess the only other thing is that I check for to make sure is that I have my, like, my Onyx maps downloaded cause I forgot that a couple times. Um, so I m- make sure that I've got all my maps downloaded chapstick. Um, let's see, uh, Havalon and Havalon blades. And really I can survive <laughs> a long time just on just having, you know, my basic stuff. I don't think I have any kind of gear item that, that like it, uh, that I have to, that I can't, I can't live without.
1: Perfect. That's just what I want to. Um, I've actually, just speaking of chapstick, I've even gone up there, got uh, sitting on a high peak for days, you know, trying to find a buck in the sun. Mm-hmm. The only place I could glass from was that peak. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I got sunburned on my hands and my hands actually were sunburned and my knuckles started to split. I am so glad I had a, some chapstick to take yep. care of that because that wasn't any fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's got, a lot. it's got a lot of uses when you really need it.
1: Well, perfect, my friend. This has been uh, very educational for me. It's good to finally uh, corner you and actually get to talk to you. Um, you. You pretty much killed it and gave me a lot to think about. So we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You bet! Thanks for having me on. I... Yeah, you bet. Anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with before we conclude this thing?
2: Um, no, just I guess if if you listen to this and still have questions on on what I do, don't don't be afraid to contact me through, you know, and whatever outlet you choose. Um, I'll gladly talk elk with anybody all day. And if it's going to make better elk hunters in the woods um, or better hunters in general in the woods, I think we're all you know all of us are all for that um people working together or or people kind of having a similar mindset on things that need to be done rather than you know people who don't know what they're doing or trying to figure it out and if I can help shorten that learning curve a little bit I uh, I definitely will help you out
1: Perfect well, why don't you go ahead and let us know you're I know you're on Facebook and Instagram why don't you just let us know how people can get a hold of you
2: Oh sure yeah I I got I, you can reach me on Facebook it's just you just search Trent Williams Outdoors. That'll take you there. Um, and then my Instagram handle is uh, T Williams, just the letter T, last name Williams, and then W Y at the end, and you'll find me.
1: Well, perfect, man. Um, this has been very enjoyable. Um, Sometimes I, one thing I haven't said is Trent also slays monster ice fish, um, <laughs> and we didn't even talk about the fishing. We didn't talk about the high country mule day. So we'll definitely have to have you on again to pick your brain about some of, of these course. other things.
2: All right. Thanks, buddy.
0: You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast.